the last 15 minutes, right? Uh, what are the, the types of things that if you ask a Muslim, what does it mean to be a, a Muslim? That they would respond with. The key to understanding Islam is that first and foremost, it is a religion of orthopraxy. So what do we mean by or- orthopraxy? As opposed to orthodoxy, to be a good Muslim is to be recognized by others as a good Muslim. You should be doing certain things and then doing them in a proscribed, in the correct manner. This doesn't mean that uh, correct understanding and belief isn't important, but simply that outward practice, outward conformity to the norms is more important. So in Christian circles, what does this remind us of? Catholics, right? Catholicism. So in Catholicism, it's it's about outward beliefs. You know, you go to Mass, you do these certain things, you, even the prayer, you know, there's this uh, call call and response that the, the priest has with the people. There's these very, it's all outward, you know, uh, outward things. So part of the understanding that is built into the religion itself, since a person is never truly confident that they'll get into heaven according to the Islamic worldview, this understanding that I need to do these things because I need to keep acting like a good Muslim because I can't, it's not just a matter of faith. It's not just trusting in something and knowing that I'm going to get to heaven. It's I have to keep doing these things to keep earning uh, the right to be call myself a Muslim because they have no, um, there's no confidence that they'll go to heaven. They need that merit to be admitted to paradise. So the placement of the section that it's following on the heels of the section on Shia Islam is noteworthy as it was uh, during the time of the Shia Sunni schism that the question of who is the true Muslim, who is who represents true Islam begins to come about. What is the Islamic identity, authentic Islamic identity? So this question is still important today as we see in the political events across the Middle East. We just talked about Yemen. You know, you talk about uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, you know, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, all these great nations that are having conflict. You know, a lot of it boils down to who's the true Muslim here? How can I kill? I can kill that guy because he's not a true Muslim. Why? How do I know that? Because he doesn't practice the religion the right way. He doesn't pray the right way. He doesn't do the things that I think he should do. So what are we really talking about then is, is the Islamic concept of Sharia. So this, this Sharia, you've heard this concept. I know, I know all of you at this point have heard Sharia. So Sharia, how we want to define it. It's the body of rules for correct practice of the Islamic religion. So we're not, you hear about, you know, it's a specialized aspect of Sharia where we were afraid like, oh, you know, are they going to institute Sharia law in Dearborn? And we're afraid of certain practices, you know, making women be veiled, you know, are we going to get rid of all the liquor stores? You know, what's, what's going to happen? For the Muslim, Sharia at its broadest is just the whole body of rules, the whole set of laws that govern and, and dictate the correct practice of the Islamic religion. It covers, this concept covers every possible human contingency, social, individual, from birth to death. So practically then, this means that Islam should and does touch on every aspect of life. Every aspect of life, Islam speaks to, in one way or another. How and what you eat. Who and how you interact with people. 
what you should do and not do in the privacy of your own home. And I think logically the Islamic extremist groups that we hear about in the news carry this idea to its logical conclusion. Why do I say that? Because if Islam and Sharia should touches on every aspect of life and speaks to every aspect of life, then you should be able to trace it down and dictate to everybody, you should follow this all the way through. And I should be able to look at your life behind closed doors and you, I should see you practicing it in the right way. You know, So when they, they're hanging people in uh, the nor- northern cities of Iraq because they caught them smoking cigarettes, and they say, well, Muslims shouldn't smoke, you know, it's following this, this conclusion to its logical end. So this concept touches on the hadith. We've talked about this concept of the hadith, this uh, body of literature that, that talks about the, the sayings and the life of the prophet. And this concept of sharia touches on the hadith since the Quran itself doesn't codify every aspect of life. There's parts of the, the Quran that doesn't, that don't, there's parts of life our existence, day-to-day existence that the Quran doesn't speak to. But for the Muslim, if Sharia is, talks about the correct practice of the entire Islamic religion and every aspect of life Islam should speak to, if the Quran doesn't speak to that part of life, then we need some place to tell us what to do. And so that Hadith filled that, that void. The Hadith are important because they are the, the next layer that we can say, well, the Quran didn't tell us uh, should I shake hands with a woman or not? Or should I, if the Quran doesn't tell me if I should buy clothes from this design, this person or not, the Hadith fill in those those blanks. Should I wear this color or not wear this color? Should I live in this country or follow these rules or should I not? The Hadith fill in the blanks at the Quran. So that's why the Hadith, that's part of the reason why the Hadith are so important to the Muslim. They fill in the gaps. So having said this, the first thing we want to look at, and we're going to go really quick through these, is correct belief for the average Muslim. What are the core doctrines that undergird or support the entire Islamic worldview? So on that sheet, you know, you have five doctrines. Correct belief, orthodoxy. So orthodoxy, we talked about orthodoxy is, is correct belief. You know, I believe the right things, uh, and I believe them in the right way. Orthopraxy is correct practice, so doing the religion in the right way. So right now we're talking about what are the orthodox beliefs of Islam, these five doctrines. Faith in God, this idea of uh, oneness of God, the absolute unity of God, the Islamic doctrine of monotheism. When we talk about faith in God, that's what we're getting at, the Islamic doctrine of monotheism, tawhid, the Arabic word. So the concept of oneness is the central concept that all the others are built upon for the Islamic understanding of God. So this this oneness of God, if you remember from that movie, when Bilal is being crushed under the stone, he's calling out Wahid, Wahid, he's calling out one, God is one. So he's exclaiming, you know, the polytheists are crushing him under the hot stone, and he's calling out one because he's saying God is one. The unity, the absolute unity of God. And so why is that? That helps us to understand that this is the central concept of everything else, and this is the concept from that the Islamic worldview flows from, then why, then we understand why Jesus Christ is, can be so offensive to a Muslim. Because to their belief, we're actually putting a partner with God to their, for their understanding. They don't really understand, you know, what the Christian 
you know, because we're monotheists, right? We're not saying that there's two gods or three gods. But for the Muslim, this core concept, helping understanding that this is the core concept helps us to understand why uh, why it's so offensive. Everything is in creation is created as a Muslim. That means the stones are Muslim. You know, trees are Muslim. Why? Because they're doing the things that God created them for. So everything in God's creation is created and, and obeying except people, right? So when we talk about Islam, Islam has at its root, the root word has, has a meaning of submission. You've heard this, uh, this idea of submission built into Islam. So when you, um, basically, when we're, what we're talking about is that if everything is created in a state of obedience to God and fulfilling what God wants them to do, except human beings who rebel, by becoming Muslim, then you're getting back into that right relationship with God. You're now submitting to what God created you for. The unbeliever, if a, a believer is, is a Muslim, the one who submits, the unbeliever, known you may have heard this word, uh, kafir, uh, uh, what does that mean? So uh, that word... Arabic uh, word, the root, comes from, it's an um, uh, agricultural term. You know, peasants, back in, in the old days, this idea that if you took a seed and you covered it, the, the, ver- the verb itself is like to cover a seed. So you're basically, by calling someone who is a kafir, they're, they're covering the truth, the idea that they're covering uh, what, you know, the truth, uh, that idea, if, if you're following what I'm saying. So this, the associated idea of that is shirk. You may have heard that term as well. I don't know if it's on the sheet. And this is the claim that Christians, Christians are idolaters. They're they're shirk. They're you know because why? Because we have we're saying there's more than one God. And why, why is that important? Well, in the Quran, it says, so here's a quote uh, from four, Surah 4, verse 48. It says, God forgiveth not that not that partners should be set up with him. That is, partners, that, that word partners comes from this root. Should be set up with him, that is, set up with God. He, But he forgiveth anything else. To whom he pleaseth to set up partners with God is to devise a sin most heinous indeed. So basically, what the Quran is saying: any other sin is okay. God can forgive that sin. Setting up idolatry is is like the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. This is the claim. The claim of idolaters were what uh, Muhammad claimed against the Meccans when he's Muhammad's alive and he flees Mecca to go to Medina. The Meccans are known as the idolaters. And this Islamic community, the Ummah, is the earthly manifestation of the oneness of God. So this idea of one community all being together is this earthly manifestation. And this this flows out in the five pillars. So we're going to rush through the other ones because that was the big one. That's the one that you want to understand. Belief in angels. This is another core doctrine is that belief in angels. It seems like a weird one, right? Why we're setting up the five essential elements of Islamic theology, 
belief in angels is one of them. Well, the Quran talks about Angel Gabriel, Michael. Uh, you know, remember it was an angel, the angel Gabriel, that brings the Quran to to Muhammad. <coughs> so they're they're just they're always there's good and bad angels. So there's there's these angels. Um, you know, Satan is an angel referred to as an angel, and he's a, obviously a bad angel. Um, there's jinn, these uh, genies. You know, this concept of genies or uh, lesser spirits, the jinn. If you so, uh, you call someone crazy in Arabic, majnun. So when you say you call someone, um, I don't know, if, Ibrahim, if you ever heard that expression. So you call someone, you know, a joke, you know, you're acting crazy, you're majnun, majnun. <laughs> uh, what that basically is saying is you're, if you follow the root, then it comes from the same root as jinn. The person's possessed by jinn. They're acting like they're possessed by jinn. To be crazy is to be possessed by jinn. Apostles and prophets. Belief in the Quran, the holy writings, and God's apostle. This third doctrine. As I, there are 25 prophets named in the Quran, most having biblical origins, Jewish and Christian. There are some Arabian prophets that are not mentioned in the Bible. But that God reveals his message to his prophets. That's why it's important. God reveals his message to Moses, to David, and to Jesus. And so prophets are important. The writings are important. The concept of final judgment, the Islamic doctrine of eschatology, this fourth central belief. And it follows Zoroastrianism, if you ever heard that, Zoroastrianism, which is the Iranian, uh, an Iranian uh, monotheist, monotheistic religion, Judaism, Christianity, this idea of good versus evil, that a judgment in the last day, uh, that God judges everything in the last day. Having one deed, so the Muslim believes that all his deeds will be read in a book in the last day, and he'll be judged by God. He doesn't know, he has no assurance that he will enter in. So it's always this idea, did I do enough, did I do the right things, that when God opens that book and reads it, he'll let me in. One further note, so some of you heard this idea of the 70 virgins, in paradise that the Muslims believe. This is always, this is a, just a side note. Depictions of heaven are always aimed, written from a, an Arab man's standpoint. So why do they, how do they picture heaven? It's how a Arab man would have pictured heaven in the desert of the seventh century. You know, it, it's, so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of bizarre. It, it doesn't appeal, it doesn't seem to appeal to women, the, the idea of, the, you know, what, I mean, there's no, the only thing that would appeal that that even has any relevance for women is that the, the Quran seems to indicate that families will be together in heaven. So there may be this family gathering, but it's mainly it seems to be mainly uh, written for men. Final one is that God's decree. This idea uh, from the Quran, Surah Seven: Whom God does guide, He is on the right path. Whom He rejects from His guidance. Such are the persons who perish. So it seems to be saying, the Quran seems to indicate a a level of predestination. That God has chosen some for heaven and has chosen others a double predestination. That he has passed over, he's he's actively decreed that some are going to go to hell. So there's this Islamic doctrine of predestination. And if they do the right thing and pray the right way? Uh, that they don't and they don't know. So neither one of those are able to give any kind of. 
It does have the same tension, though, that Calvinism has, which is interesting. That there's a level of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that are in tension together. It doesn't, it doesn't, God's sovereignty and predestination doesn't take away from the fact that you still need to do the right things and you're held, you'll be held accountable if you don't. So somehow those two doctrines in the Islamic worldview are, are balanced. And then finally, I see, I say that Shia, Usul ad-Din. These are the Shia. These are the five doctrines for the Shia. They believe in the oneness of God. That is that, that monotheism, the justice of God, prophethood, the imamate. Remember, we talked about the imams and how important they were for Shia, and the resurrection. So, five different core doctrinal beliefs for the Shia. The five pillars. So, we really. This is. <laughs> We're going to try to spend the lion's share of our last ten minutes. Five pillars of Islam: correct practice, orthodoxy, and those. So, you on your sheet, you'll see the five listed out uh, with their Arabic word that the Arabic uh, term for the five: the testimony, prayer, uh, almsgiving, pilgrimage, and fasting. So the, the declaration of faith. There is no God but God. Muhammad is his prophet. You can see it written in Arabic. It's the resolution's not great. The Arabic uh, pronunciation written in English and then what it how it translates. There's no God but God. Muhammad is his prophet. So if you see this part here, this is actually what you'll see on the ISIS flags. And this is on the Saudi Arabia flag. Saudi Arabia's flag has the same phrase. You'll see this part here is written on... This is essential. You'll see this phrase everywhere if you recognize in Arabic that this there is no God but God. That, that core doctrine of monotheism. There's only one requirement for a person to convert to Islam. only thing you have to do to convert to Islam is to recite this verse. That's it. You don't have to go through like a catechism. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to do go forward in a service while they're playing, come as you are. It's just say this phrase. So this testimony in many ways is a religious creed. It needs to be only spoken one time in the life of a Muslim, but once uttered meaningfully makes the rest of the religion incumbent upon that believer. So once you say this and you say it for truth, everything else falls in place and you have to do everything else. But initially, this is all it takes to become a Muslim. Prayer. So, the Shahada, the Declaration of Faith. Here's a, a mass outdoor prayer. Uh, you see the Dome of the Rock. This is Jerusalem. So men are getting together for the Friday prayers. They don't have to do it in the mosque. They can just do it anywhere. Gathered together. And you can see the prayer rugs. You can kind of see it. The only requirement that they pray is that they have this. Uh, for men, it's from your belly button to your knees have to be covered. So that's his, that's the only requirement to go out and pray is that you have this much covered, that you're not drunk, and you have some type of prayer mat separating you from the ground for, for the Sunni standpoint. The Shia have a, a few other 
minor things. But for, and someone will lead. So if you have more than three, if you have three men, one of them has to lead the prayer. And it doesn't matter who. There's no like, there's no clergy in Islam. There's no like, or, you know, or order of, of clergy. Uh, there are people who are trained, but there's no clergy. And one person will lead the prayers. And when I say, when I say lead the prayers, it's lead the motions. So or, remember, Islam is a religion of orthopraxy, correct practice. So the correct things that you do uh, in the right order. So this is one, uh, one. you basically do all these and it's one time. But each prayer, in the morning it's twice, the afternoon it's three times, the two midday you do this four times, and the end day is end of day you're supposed to do it three. So 17 times a day you go through these motions. And you see even down to when you're seated how your feet have to be. The next pillar, that this pillar of prayer. This includes the five daily prayers. So five times a day a Muslim is going through the, the faithful. If you're doing it right, you're doing this, you know, five times a day. As well as the weekly Friday prayer, the Juma prayer done collectively at the mosque the five daily prayers uh, and I'll just say them real quick uh, well I'm not going to have time so you you do one you know really early in the morning usually before dawn and then one in the morning um, one around noon the afternoon in the evening and then at night before you go to bed yeah no, I'm just saying in Africa we had a mosque right next to our compound that we were at and that's what we woke up to every morning around five or six yep. then screaming the call to prayer Yep. I'm sure you probably heard the quote for over a year. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I uh, I was always taught that it was two in the like, uh, like prayers. Yeah, five a day, and then each was like it was two, four if you're not praying at the mosque, or two if you are. Yeah. And then four in the afternoon, three in the midday, like afternoon, night time, then four at night. That might be. I I was going off what I've uh, a Sunni pattern, so I don't know if it's different or maybe I just didn't get the right information. So that's probably I take it from someone who actually practiced it. Uh, but yeah, so you're going through these things. Each one of these is once, and then you do you stand up and you start over yeah. and do it again. And so it's not so much the idea like the Christian idea of you know let's let's pray and it's more about the content. It's about doing the right things in the right order. Praying, you know, you recite verses at the right time. You also have to recite them correctly. I correct. remember leading one before, and if you get it wrong, then you need to correct it. Yep. Like during the prayer. Yeah, and so and it has to be done in Arabic. So even if you don't speak Arabic, this is the thing. So you don't speak Arabic, you still have to recite, do the prayer in Arabic. You have no idea what you've been saying. So it's like speaking in tongues in a way, I guess. Yeah. But uh, Ken and then... General Motors at, at the Tech Center actually put in what they call the meditation room yep. and they actually had pigeonholes for the, the rugs to go in yeah we had a place when I worked in Dearborn we had the same thing we had to build like a little mini prayer area yep. for the guys to go and then you had to let them go if they the, said, windows, the windows faced east yep yeah. so uh, James and then Joseph what if, uh, what if someone had like a handicap or something that kept them from doing some yeah so there, if you're in a wheelchair you wouldn't you know you wouldn't be um Forced to do them, but they're all of them allow for, you know, some type of handicap or some. If you're handicapped, then there's an allowance made. Mm-hmm. All five of the pillars. Is there a blood link that they follow? Uh, it would be basically 
uh, certain schools of, 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 of Islamic jurisprudence has, have ruled or made allowances in the modern era for uh, these things. So, you, if you, for instance, the pilgrimage that we showed that picture of, you don't have to make that if you're over a certain age or you're poor. So there's these certain allowances. Joseph. Um, when you said, look like the men do all the praying. What about the women? Yeah. Are they required to do their prayer? Great question, great question. Where so everybody, yeah, great question. Everyone prays, uh, but usually, so uh, prayer is always segregated if it's together. And depending on where you're at, so you might have uh, women praying on one side, men on the other. Okay. Typically in a mosque, what you have is men in the front and women in the back. The women pray in the back area. So it'll be, um, but the women are always praying off away from the men. And uh, I've always heard that Muslims say it's a modesty issue because because you're going through the motions and women are bent over and doing things. You don't want you want the women behind you so that the guys aren't looking, you know, at what's going on there. So that's the way it's always put to me. Why typically in mosques the women are behind the men in the prayer? Great question. The women are praying as well. Uh, usually people don't take pictures of the women because of the Islamic modesty issue. Um, so. Uh, so we want to say, you know, the actual me- mechanics and proper dress. So women have to be covered uh, from from the top of their heads all the way down, basically to their ankles. Mm-hmm. Men have to at least have, as I said, from the belly button to the knee. There's a certain robe you're supposed to be facing towards Mecca. As Lisa was in uh, at her hotel room when she visited Malaysia for work, they usually have a little spot somewhere in the room that tells you this is. The direction to Mecca, because you have to face Mecca towards Mecca. You know, so if you're west of, you know, so depending on where you're at in the world, uh, you have to face. And even there's apps nowadays on your phone that'll tell you which way is Mecca, so you can, if you're if you're not sure, you point. Um, as I said, a person shouldn't pray directly on the ground. They're supposed to use some type of rug. I've seen a guy. Remember when I was out in Jerusalem. You see, you'll see a man in, when it's prayer time, he'll just actually have a piece of cardboard and just do it right on the side of the street, right on the sidewalk. Um, as I said, genders are separated, but this is common in Judaism. So if you go to a, a you know, if, if you go to a synagogue, uh, conservative synagogues, men and women are separated as well. If you go to the Western Wall, men and women are separated. The women aren't allowed to go and worship with the men. At the at the Western Wall in Judaism, so it's it's similar to Judaism. There's segregation. Uh, there's a call to prayer, as uh, Jordan was talking about. Five times a day, you're going to hear this mosque. It's usually nowadays, most of the time, it's a recording at the the really ex- fancy mosque or the old school ones. It's actually a guy calling out, you know, the the prayer, the call to prayer, the call to the faithful. Um. And there has to be someone leading the prayer, as Brahim was saying. There's usually someone is asked to lead the prayer. And it's not has nothing to do with spiritual maturity. It's just whoever, the expectation is you know the right thing to do. And the people will follow your lead. Um, it has to be done in the right manner. So this is called a waka. So this is the one cycle. And each, you know, you do multiple cycles at each prayer time. Um... Let's see. The underlying significance is that identification with the larger community. So you're you're thinking as you're doing this. All across the world, all the Muslims in the world, we're all praying five times a day. We're all getting up before dawn. 
It's it's this oneness. We're all one community. So that's the underlying aspect. When I say unity and the oneness of God is the underlying concept, this is how it shows up. Because in prayer, in the Shahada, every Muslim to become a Muslim recites that that prayer. So there's this, you know, we've all said this prayer together, this one phrase, there is no God but God. When we pray, we pray five times a day. We're all doing it the right way. It builds this sense of community. Every Friday, all the Muslims get together and go to the mosque. You know, all the Muslims. So it builds this community. The oneness reinforces that oneness, that uniting to brothers and sisters around the globe by this basic act of obedience. So it's not that Muslims don't see prayer as personal devotion or worship, because they do. If you ask the average Muslim, they'll say, yes, this is an act of devotion, an act of worship. But they just see it in addition to this. They see this this uniting with with the larger Islamic community in addition to that devotion and worship. All right, we're going to have to cut it short. Uh, I apologize. We didn't get through everything. Um, next week is our last week, so I'm going to try to cover a million topics. <laughs> so um, before I close this in prayer, any guys, if you're available, shoot over to the auditorium because we need to set up the auditorium for the ladies. The ladies are having their... Um, ladies stuff on Friday night so I don't know what's going on so let me go ahead and close this in prayer Lord God we thank you for tonight we thank you for each one here thank you for this ability to study and learn and, and ask questions and just seek some truth help us to have a heart for the Muslims that we interact with to understand them and also seek to reach them for Christ we ask and pray this all in Jesus name Amen, Amen.